Questions, quite a few questions here. <laughs> uh, probably a bit too much thinking going on. <laughs> uh, so, what's helpful? Practical questions and uh, Questions on terminology and <clears throat> favorite Sankaras again. So I look at some of this uh, theory, language, ethical concerns. Couple on sankharas are all sankharas are conditioned, but all conditioned things sankharas. Is anything in the relative world that isn't a sankara? Mm. <laughs> well, you know. So sankharas, three sankharas. Uh, early last week you rated these three in question for where am I, kaya sankhara, how am I, jitta sankhara, what am I going to do about it, vajji sankhara. Do the formations hold those questions for us? Do these three help us see the arising of sankhara? Do the help questions help us to deal with the sankara as it arises and are not specific to the type of sankara? I'm confused that my recollection of how this was presented feels muddled. At the same the time, it sounded helpful. All sankharas are conditioned, but are all conditioned things sankharas? Anything in the relative world that isn't a sankhara. Mm-hmm. Is awareness itself conditioned? So, just these sort of three. So, yeah. <clears throat> sankhara refers to the two, two aspects of experience. One is the... the um, The energy that activates, so you can't, it's not really a thing, it's just a, a name that we apply to a particular process in terms of our experience, how experience happens. How experience happens, it's thrown up, you know, suddenly, boom, it rises, you know. So the arising is the, is the energy push of the sankhara, so you could it just simply as a kind of an 
an energy or this, the quality of energy in any of these uh, in our experience uh, has a certain um, repeatable so the energy is going on a particular track one is to make us think one is to get us breathing and one is to um, get us internalizing experience internalizing experience in terms of perceptions and feelings so you know so things don't just flash through your eyes and that's it something registers it and says oh that was and you remember it so that there's a particular activity or sankara that helps to get that process going mm-hmm. yeah. so <clears throat> so just one way of of um Try try to bear that in mind. It's the and then it can be called formations because they they go in particular programmed ways. So the word program may be helpful. You know, program is say a sort of set of codes. Do this, like a, what they call a algorithm. You know, so it's just little instructions. They they're coded. You know, it's how to do breathing. So, that's so Sankara Academy. Some Sankaras are taught how to do breathing. Yeah. <laughs> like that's their that's their thing. <laughs> Those are not things. These are just particular energies, and so they have an intelligence to them, which means they they activate, switch on particular processes. So anything that's switched on. You know, activates, and because it's predictable, it's seen as a can be described essentially as a kind of a knowable thing, like breathing in and out. You know, something does that. It only do, it does that. Breathing out doesn't do thinking. So it's got a particular. So it, it's a formation. Mm-hmm. Now you can, because this kind of sounds rather academic, but I think the Buddha was mostly talking in colloquial language of the time, which probably was one of those terms that was used, like we might talk about programs or algorithms now. But if you, you know, it's just looking at it very rule of thumb, then if you, everything that, tells you where you are is about the bodily sense it's a bodily program how you are refers to your your heart what your perceptions and feelings are coming up with so it gives you a check into the current state of how the chittasankara is operating so you look at just the raw quality of it is to generate perceptions and feelings that's a chitta-sankara. Then, of course, um, that's, the, that's the fundamental quality of it. But then, of course, they, they get, because um, they're intelligent, they get <coughs> activated in particular ways. So particular kinds of perceptions and ethical and moral and skillful and unskillful. You get these activities occur having established a particular perception a particular further activity goes on so sankaras generate 
further programs. So a greed program or a generosity program or a we know how to do generosity, we know how to do greed. You know, we've done it once, it's, it's, it's knowable, you know, it feels the same. Generosity feels the same, so it's a noble program yeah, in terms of certain perceptions of being established, they generate another particular volitional activity. So the leading edge of the citta sankara, how it generates more programs is through volition or intention. So it's a movement out. Oh, do that. Um, and so it has attention, it means it, it's established on a particular object and it receives its impressions from that object. So this is the ongoing, fresh, you know, program. Got the kind of underlying one, and the details get etched in every moment by mental, by um, what it's picking up, and by what perceptions are established already. So every new moment it's been referred to in terms of existing perceptions. There's new moments been referred to an pre-existing model of comfortable or happy or friendly or pleasant or tasty or, you know, and then, oh, you get a volitional push of desire or aversion. So, so it's like that. And the Vajji Sankara acts as the tool of the volition. So we, having experienced this urge of some kind, we think, oh yeah, I'll do it like that. I'll give that to Joseph or something, that would be nice. Or I'll make myself a peanut butter sandwich, that would be good. You know, you get the volition then tells the thinking mind to come up with the ideas of what will be what will fit its inclinations. So what am I going to do about it? It's well another way of looking at it. So you see the underlying or the fundamental framework is fashioned and uh, elaborated every moment. That's how karma gets created. Like every moment something is received, and oh, that reminds me of that, and oh, it's one of those, and then we act upon it. So it's uh, that's the that's the ongoing quality of creating, of laying down new patterns. You learn a language first of all, you fumble away at it, eventually get good at it. You can speak it. You've developed a new program through volition. Those sounds now mean something. You know, the perception is established. That particular sound means uh, anapana. Oh, that means breathing in and out. You know, 20 years ago, you might not have known what those sounds meant. But now you've got the perception is established. Those sounds mean breathing in and out. So, oh, now that's there. Therefore, you can have an opinion about it or decide how to do it. Didn't have the concept, then you, that wouldn't work. So, programs build up the the frame frame of reference that that um, acts as the springboard for fresh intention, fresh volition.
So what I'm going to do about it is is the our inquiring brains, our learning, our brains as they're motivated by our wish to feel happier, more complete, more fulfilled, more intelligent, more comfortable to acquire something, and then your brain is is uh, uh, urged to give the fill in the details of how you're going to do that. Mm. No, it's often overworked because the, the what occurs is this this uh, you know the, the volitional urge arising from the heart is often hasn't got in touch with the deathless, so it's always looking for that whatever it is that will feel make me feel solid. And you know, what is it? What will the really nice thing to have or be? We're looking for the the right perception to have established, the right sense, the right feeling, the right impression that will be really, really right and there and solid and stay there. And there isn't one. But so there's kind of hunger. So the what to do about it button gets pushed a lot. So eventually what we become a lot of the time is just lots and lots of what to do about it, what to do about it, what to do about it, what to do about it. Learn something, think something, suck something, switch something on, switch something off. Try something new, try something old, go here, go there, go back, go forward, go up, go down. Think about it, blame somebody, worry about it and so forth. Just keep doing something to get that. Sooner or later you're going to hit the the right one somewhere. (laughs) So the what to do about it gets a lot of... That, that little switch is really pushed a lot. It's almost wearing out sometimes. <laughs> Don't just sit there. Do something about it. So, very often what to do about it is to stop doing something about it. <laughs> and explore, just go inwardly, you know, rather than keep following that, that uh, volitional push because you're looking for something that doesn't exist, you're looking for a permanent condition, there isn't one. Looking for a perception that's that's totally solid and unwavering and gladdening and comfortable and fulfilling and there isn't one. Looking for an internal experience in something that can man- be manifested that will last and there isn't one. They all come and go and change. So, you know, you have a retreat and you get a very nice experience and some insights, some realizations and agreeable feeling of warmth or closeness or friendliness or silence or peacefulness. Oh, well, yeah, that was pretty good. Let's do it again. Because it didn't, didn't quite get there, but it looked like it was about to get If you only got a little bit more of it, you would have got there. No, you don't, you know, there isn't, because <laughs> it, it's conditioned. So anything that manifests, that arises, is conditioned, and it passes. <coughs> the awareness is is um, just that, um, in the sense we're using it, it really means consciousness 
and uh, the consciousness takes an object, you know, it takes sight, sound, thought, subtle experiences become objects of consciousness. So in that sense, consciousness is leaning, is the experience of being with something, being with something, and the something is with, is conditioned, impermanent, subject to change. So it's always, consciousness is kind of tottering on the edge of something, it's always moving along. So in that sense, uh, the awareness of things, the awareness of of a, any kind of object, is um, is is conditioned. It's conditioned by looking for an object. That's it. That's its condition. Consciousness seeks an object, seeks to find something. Now there is, um, say, you know, if consciousness gives up that habit. Then it's unconditioned. <laughs> In other words, it's not dependent upon a condition. If it's able to give up that habit, so there's a particular training to giving up, patinitsaga, or saga, complete giving up of having an object. Uh, of course, this, in some sense, sounds not easy. Some sense sounds almost impossible. But there's a graduated training which comes from insight, from really seeing the nature of all phenomena, seeing it, feeling it, realizing it, getting the aha of around particular things, you know, external things, and then, uh, you know, sight, sounds, touches, thoughts, not satisfying. So we begin to get less passionate about that. And uh, through that process, then you get other kind of subtler forms. We get more, oh, that's really nice, you know, all that nice inner warmth and silence, quiet. So you get a little more. Then you think, well, that changes too, doesn't it? Um, does it? Mm. So uh, then with that process, what happens through that is that consciousness itself is learning to get less and less grasping. So it can be be weaned of that, of that tendency to hold on to something. And then eventually it just gives up. It doesn't incline. That's one way of looking at it. The full entry into into the unconditioned, the full entry into it. It can also be said that to a certain degree, you know, that that potential is already there. It just somehow we need to fully get the point. There's a moment, perhaps, you know, when a thought ends. When the before we grab the next thing, the next thought. There's that moment perhaps when the consciousness is just kind of like in a wide open for a split second. And then, oh, what about that? You know? So perhaps in those moments when something passes, or it's between the passing and the next, the rising, there's some sense of being able perhaps to intuit awareness before it 
manifests, comes up with an object. You slow it down and you look into the point between one, one thing ceasing and the next thing arising. So you have, once something has arisen, it must keep going until it ceases. But if it's ceasing, it doesn't have to arise. So once it's arisen, well, it's like being once you're born, you're going to die. You know? But you don't have to be born. Look at it very crudely in, in that way. Similarly, once you've generated karma, there's going to be a result. But you don't have to keep generating more. You know? Similarly, you know, you can come to the end of a thought and you don't have to generate another thought. Once you've begun a thought, you, it's going to be there until it finishes, isn't it? You can't say, oh, unthink that one, go back. <laughs> it's going to go through. So that's why we have to be very patient and not react, because the less we react, the less we generate another activity that creates another emotion, another thought. You just let something finish, let it pass, let it end, let it go, let, let go of it. Notice the moment when something dissolves, Anicca vata sankara. All conditions are impermanent. Upadavaya dhammino. Having risen, they must surely cease. Upajitvani rujanti. Having the nature to it to cease. Upajitvani rujanti. Having arisen, they 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 come to cessation. And in their passing, there is peace. <coughs> some will pass some also call there is ease so you know the way that uh, anyway so it's really the relinquishment of that energy to to generate something now this really refers to the mind the jitta See, it doesn't mean you've got to stop breathing, but the jitta sankara, the volitional push, is where you know is the thing that keeps the, the mind running on. The push to have, the push to be, the push to know, the push to get somewhere. Yeah. And it's not easy to give it up because once you're uncomfortable, then it's going to keep going. Oh, I feel a bit happier. So you've got to get to some sense of feeling relatively comfortable and, and at ease. Then there's a possibility of, oh, this is all right, you know, just, just can you release a little more? No, that's, that's, the, that's the tonic of, of calm and samadhi, the tonic. And then essentially it's an insight experience to really see and look at the inclination that still conjures up something to be, something to have, something could be had. So that very inclination is a sankara. It's an activity, it's an activator. And that's, that's, that's the one really has to be understood and, and given up. Hmm. But the Buddha does say, you know, there is a consciousness that does not incline, does not move forward, does not go back, does not rise up. And this is the ending of suffering. 
<coughs> it doesn't take an object. It's called the non-manifestative consciousness. It doesn't manifest the sight or a sound or a thought. It doesn't manifest those. And yet there is this. So it's, of course it's one of those things that is inspiring to, to note and confusing to think about. <laughs> But it's there saying, yeah, and the Buddhists will look, look, really, the main thing is just keep practicing the Eightfold Path and it will do it thoroughly. You know, that's that's the way it goes. It goes to this very, um, it goes in that direction towards ceasing, so letting go, relinquishing. And you can testify that because you do all the time, you do able to relinquish, you exercise that giving up. And so you just keep that that understanding of, you know, the ability to relinquish is a very special one and, uh, you know, goes against a lot of the grain of the society, the human beings. Because one have to move through the jhanas to become enlightened. <coughs> What else do we have here? The other day you referred to the fourth jhana. I'm not even sure what the first jhana is. <laughs> I keep hearing references to jhanas and absorptions and how even we pass them, meditators need to experience the first one before they can gain insight. Mm. What is a jhana? Another one here, I think, on Samadhi somewhere. Oh yes, here it is. What's the role of sati and samadhi within the practice of samatha and vipassana? Are all four terms means to the same end? Is samadhi the result of samatha? Is vipassana the result of samadhi? So samadhi, jhanas, insights. Yeah. <clears throat> the jhana, the word jhana means to absorb or the word jayati means to absorb. And it's a word the Buddha would often use, encouraging people go off and jayati, go and get absorbed. Um, go and do that. So it's the deepening into interior of experience where the um, all the energies that get Throw it, go out into sights and sounds and thoughts and so forth, calm down, quiet down. So you're very much in an interior experience. So, so see, and particularly the, the rough stuff, like the hindrances, have have been calmed, soothed. The rough stuff. So, and then 
it's really you can look at jar then because that's you know just like as you're deepening you could you can create these lines on the wall oh well that's the first you know i don't think there's like little signposts now you entered first jar congratulations now second it's a, it's a gradation but uh, whereby you know as the, the hindrances abate then you feel a sense of uplift because the mind is no longer struggling under the pressure of those so it gets a little more fully absorbed in its in its awareness in its uh, in its interior quality so awareness is the word I'm using for the interior quality of consciousness the sense of the knowingness of consciousness so you get more absorbed in that and and the more fully one enjoys it then and really opens into it and takes it in and tastes it then it's the experience of uh, happiness and ease uh, come around and the mind settles into that so that would be called, that's called, um, you know, though it's not exactly a on-off, but that, that range and that level of it is called the first level of absorption. You, the absorption has happened to the degree to which one is satisfactorily um, residing in a mind free from hindrances and enjoying the fruition of it. So and this <coughs> is considered, uh, so the full, full awakening is considered contingent upon having something of this nature. You know, Buddha is saying dependent on the first jhana, or the second, third, fourth, but at least the first where the mind is not activated by hindrances. So, you, you know, so you're not having these things continually throwing you out. So that would be considered, uh, according to the Buddha anyway, a necessary um, basis for awakening, for deep insight. Because you, your mind is unified at one level, looking to the roots of mental behavior, looking into the, the roots of how, how the mind works, rather than just in all the stuff that it throws up. Mm. A jhana itself is is not not awakening. It's still a conditioned state. It's a na- it's a perception. It's a level of perception. Where the perceptions in jhana would be some could be something like the perceptions uh, of light or softness or spaciousness, uh, comfort, the feelings of comfort and ease and subtle pleasure, and so that. And so it's, it's, it's another conditioned state dependent upon the re- removing of the hindrances and the mind deepening into the enjoyment of that experience. So it's conditioned, it means it arises, it passes, you can come out of it uh, and, and, the, the, and you can hang on to it. So you can get attached to it thinking this is I am, this I've got enlightened, this is my thing, now I've got one of these, like everything else. Then you can worry about it and lose it altogether. (laughs) Still, uh, the Buddha seemed to think this was kind of 
you know, really much what we should be heading towards because of the relief. It, uh, a pleasant abiding in the here and now uh, means your, uh, your mind's greed faculty is, is abated because we're enjoying ourselves. It's not irritable and snappy or anxious or depressed. So he said, well, it's just a really nice place to be. If you want to be somewhere, be here. And then from there, you, you're not pressurized. You can look into things more clearly um, and really see how things work. Sati, <coughs> samadhi, and samatha, and vipassana. Sati is to bear something in mind, um, taking a particular thought, or even dhamma theme, or sensation, or um, bodily experience. Uh, the, sometimes the one phrase is used that describes sati, saying one is. One is mindful because one remembers the gist of what was said long ago. So you're able to sustain something, bear something in mind. You know, that's one so it's like a kind of having a good memory. It's not memory itself, it's that, that which supports memory, your ability to stay with something. So you know, even if it happened years ago, you can still hold that impression. That's sati. So you can use it for concepts, um, it's, called, it's called nusati. So sati in the and when you have it like the prefix anu means in the presence of. So you get something like Buddha nusati, means you bring up the concept of Buddha and you bear that in mind. So you're mindful of the experience or the meaning of Buddha. You'd bear that in mind. Or the mean maranusati means mindful in the along together with or applied to the concept, the perception associated with death. So you bear that in mind. Hmm? So there's various uh, you know, conceptual things we can be mindful of. Not just the word, but actually we're looking into that. What's it mean? What's the feeling associated with drinking it in? So one other aspect of sati is it's, it's not, it creates a frame of reference and then abiding in that, you get the full meaning and effect of what that what's in that frame of reference mm. so in this way it supports it's considered to be the foundation for samadhi because it does collect it, it abates the mind's distractedness and agitation it goes against agitation and distractedness so it helps you to unify and if you use a suitable object to be mindful of then it's going to support samadhi. Now, of course, you know, looking at it more specifically, you have such a thing as samasati, right mindfulness or wise mindfulness. It means you're mindful of something useful. <laughs> because, of course, you could be mindful of something completely stupid and, uh, you know, bear that in mind. But there's something called mitya-sati, which means wrong mindfulness mindfulness of something that's not supportive um, then the Buddha even recommends sometimes don't be mindful if you've got some obsession in your mind don't be mindful of it just let it switch to something more useful now the, the system or the, that does that switching is called uh, yoni soma nisikara appropriate attention decides what's useful 
right now to be mindful of. So that that operates. That says, okay, frame up that. That's a good one. Stay with that. Take that in. So this is a prerequisite for mind for right mindfulness. Mm. So there's a wisdom in that. So mindfulness then acts as the foundation for samadhi through its because it collects and it stays present and it it uh, shifts dis- distractedness. Samadhi is both um, has a calming aspect, which is called the samatha, and it also has a, a wisdom aspect because it, you need wisdom to develop samadhi. Yeah, you know, you're really looking at what is uh, uh, useful, what is to to to. You know, to to guide oneself to that quality of collectedness. Mm. Samadhi also acts as a an area, or once it's established, then you can use insight within that. It's, so, the experience of samatha, samatha is a requisite for vipassana. Mm. You need wisdom to develop samadhi. That's called panya and develop samatha, the wisdom that arises when one has some calm and samadhi is called vipassana. So they're not really opponents, they're actually collect, you know, they connect. You you don't have vipassana really until you've got some kind of samadhi. Because vipassana is is not just wisdom, it means the specific wisdom of looking into the nature of conditions, the roots of conditions. Now you can be wise saying, you know, I don't want to do that, I want to do that, it's ethical wisdom, that's yoni so manisikara, that's wise. But insight specifically refers to being able to experience, you know, the movement of your mind as, it, oh, that's impermanent, that's relative, that's changeable really feeling it, experiencing it. So for that you've got to have enough steadiness to really look into, you know, nature of perception arising or the nature of a thought or even nature of an inclination. So that's how they kind of fit together. I hope this is useful. I don't just get academic about it, but so something that you can, um, you know, apply yourself to. So look at something perhaps more, more down to earth. Well, there's a few things here. There's the experience of dying and the experience of being back in life in the USA. And there's a certain perhaps similarity about these experiences. <laughs> Both of them involve dealing with a certain amount of confusion, panic, <laughs> worrying about the future. <laughs> so you know, essentially the, you know, we, we look for security and we look for um, something 
We don't like the unpleasant, but life and death are both insecure and they have unpleasant things happening in them. Life and dying. You know, living, living is a form of dying, really. <laughs> it's just the you started dying as soon as you were born. <laughs> I don't want to sound gloomy about it, but that's that's you know the clock started ticking <laughs> then, uh, and during that time, then you know as long as we're, so um, very much experience of the social world sees death as a failure and a tragedy and something that happens at the end when things go wrong. But actually, from the Buddhist perspective, that's just the end of the process. The, 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 you know, it wasn't like you were doing fine for so many years and then you started dying. No, you started dying as soon as you got born. <laughs> uh, and uh, there's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> it, it uh, nothing wrong with it. But the world in general doesn't see it that way because it always sees the most important things are sensations, sights, sounds and, uh, and and all that even though these things are manifestly um, fickle and unreliable so you really you're training yourself to to you know in, come more back to the interior really um, that's where they're called the deathless the interior, deep interior. When you release, you can only really release in the interior. You can, you can, you can block and push away. And exteriors, you can kind of avert your attention, but you can only really release stuff. Interior, you know, release the activities, the hungers, the, the aversions, the disappointments. And releasing that, those energies, and the grasping is essentially the problem, hanging on, and craving. So when one's dying, then it becomes quite simple because the external world does by itself start to disappear. And then the encouragement is always to, to uh, you know, perhaps recollect what skillful hope you know really frame up sati so you're framing something skillful and helpful contentment gratitude loving kindness and so forth um and then beginning to learn just to, to let go to let go to let go and trust it trust the letting go and if you've done that all your life and you've learned to really understand relinquishment and trust it and then you just keep doing that until you know, through the dying process. Life in US of A, I imagine it's pretty much life, like life in a lot of places. Um, you know, those details are different, but it's all of what to do about it, isn't it? That, that button's jammed. <laughs> and so one of the things to really do about it is to learn to pause. Have these, you know, one thing I recommend because it's so difficult to to maintain one's balance is just to build in lots of pause moments in a day if they're just 10 seconds of pausing 
20 seconds of pausing, just stop. So what's really happening, what's really important, how, I'm, how am I now? So we don't lose touch with the interior. Interior, you know, our awareness, our presence, our heartfulness is not lost. <clears throat> and uh, through that, if you keep coming, coming to your fundamental sense and balance, then you can know more clearly, oh, that stuff just really throws me off balance. Can I minimize contact with it or don't or put you know don't do it or minimize contact with it because it, I keep getting thrown off balance can I regard it as uh, something to not uh, you know, put a lot of energy into so you begin to study withdraw from things that are either directly unskillful or don't contribute to anything useful and that's the that's the trajectory to to what can we let go of and uh, so just giving oneself those pause moments to what's happening how am I now you know the non-react moments moments you just loosen and stop reacting okay, where am I now it's 10 seconds take an out breath so you've got some making some choices and you may not you're not going to turn the whole thing around in one day but you do incrementally you do a little degree a half a degree and over a period of years you're going to get go in a better direction than if you didn't do that similarly so important to have uh, kalyanamitta or spiritual friends i think this is the buddha so this is one of the two two essential uh, supports for practice. The other one is Yoniso Manisikara, one's own deep attention, which helps you to decide and frame what you're going to what you're going to bear in mind, where you're going to go, what's really going to be helpful, what to put aside, how to develop sila, dana sila, renunciation, how to develop these things. Um, and then the Kalyanamitta is, is the people who remind you of that and confirm it and congratulate you on it and help you to do it. <laughs> you know, help you, you know, to feel less helpless and hopeless and lost. And you've got some external reference for other human beings who help to, just by their modeling and by their companionship and by their, their care and concern, can help, yeah. So that instead of contributing to a to a sort of a corporate body that's marching further and further into samsara at a faster and faster rate, you start to form a you know a corporate body that's putting the brakes on and changing gear. Society is really, you know, the corporate body, isn't it? And uh, so it's just something that humans do. They always have done. They always have had society with little bands or tribes or chiefdoms. You always had some kind of social group. That's how we operate. So it's up to us really to generate the kind of tribal units that uh, support Dhamma. If it's three people, so be it. Yeah, if it's two people, so be it. Said so Buddha, said if you can find even one. 
that's good. <laughs> you know, unit of two is better than the unit of one. Because <laughs> you've got something that sees you from the outside and says, oh, you know, Josh, why don't you slow down a bit? Or, you know, or so often we are very critical of ourselves or we don't see ourselves. And something just helps mirror, wise mirror. Um, <coughs> That's those are the essential requirements. So one's own deep attention, which is going to be fostered by pausing, asking those pertinent questions: How am I? What's useful? Do I need this? Uh, how's this going to affect me? How is it going to affect others? Just you know, that question, um, and also forming uh, kalyanamita that can help, and that sees you through living and dying. Remember how important it is because you just you can't live alone. You can't, you know. And we, uh, you're born. It takes other people to help you get born. It takes other people to help you get educated, to live with. To you can die. You help have to have other people to help you die. <laughs> get through it, and uh, that's not a failing. That's that's because we don't really exist as individuals. The individual is a, is a bit of a myth. We don't exist as individuals. We hold that idea in our mind, but it's not true. <laughs> so making much of skillful companionship. Certainly in a, in a consumer society, the more that you can reach for the re- renunciation button, then it gives you a big leverage. You know? well, well, I don't need that. If simply, uh, the more you can use other people as opportunities for generosity and kindness, the more you, you know, it's difficult to be generous without somebody to be generous to, isn't it? <laughs> so, and, and it's uh, it's considered one of the ways in which we feel good. It uplifts us, it strengthens that. Uh, feeling kind, generous, serving, helping, giving attention. You need somebody to do that to. The more we can do that, the more we're going to find ourselves enriched by, um, you know, being here. And those are all the, the things you, you build up over a lifetime. Hiriotipa, conscience and concern. You respect others and you respect yourself. Um, happiness can't arise, true happiness can't arise without self-respect. Cannot be. Unless the self-respect, there cannot be any real happiness. There can be excitement, but not happiness can't really respect yourself if you don't respect others because you you know you can't do that so that that's called those two respect for yourself respect for others is called the guardians of the world the local parlor they stop people getting ruined people can ru- get ruined through losing respect for themselves and others they just go down the down the tubes you know drink drugs failure just collapse down that so it's so important, and we we learn that self-respect by being able to 
hold ourselves with some dignity and you know, I don't need that, I'm not going to cheat on that, I'm not going to be, you know. So the world actually gives you a good chance to keep defining yourself as in, uh, not following that and I'm going to do this. So this is how life is then a, a training ground and life in the USA is a training ground. It's, uh, you know, you can see it as a, an obstacle course but actually it's a training ground you need to get fit and 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 flexible and resilient and hold you hold your ground and it's gonna like a you know like you're a boxer you your coach is gonna throw punches at you to make sure you keep your guard up <laughs> that's what life and society is about it's constantly throwing you punches and you got to keep your guard up and know how to duck and weave and and uh Keep your feet lively, you know. Don't just stand there getting whacked by it all. <laughs> so it's tough love, really. <laughs> and you know, there's always we can just remember the media. You can always see something that's just so utterly depressing. About we can frame up those, and you think, "Was well, this helpful? Is it useful?" Feeling impotent, feeling helpless, is that good for you? I don't think so. Better to just, um, you know, see the guy next door and give him a hand. <laughs> then you, <laughs> it's immediate, it's practical. You're not solving, you know, the problems of the. Da, 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 da. But you, you feel, oh, I did that. It felt good. You do it. And the more we, we really, you've got to work at that grassroots level and build up something that's. Uh, sustainable then of course you know a passing can be one where we have no regret we have no regret well, we've learnt something we've established a foundation we've we framed up something useful that's sankara you know you can either they're the programs you can either have ones that are endlessly destructive or ones that help you to feel peaceful and steady and help you towards the unconditioned. You need programs to, to find the unprogrammed. Some of the Sankaras are not bad news, it's just a fact of life. And uh, through practice you begin to see which particular energies and perceptions and intentions and inclinations lead to disbanding the unskillful ones, the painful ones, the hurt ones, the frustrated ones, the negative ones, and even lead you to then to begin to disband the programs themselves. So we have that possibility. I think I'll You know, when you someone's when you have hesitancy regarding going too deep into practice and then not being able to reintegrate, so the nervous system blows a fuse. Um, you know, one of the skills of the Buddha mentions of some of samadhi 
is how to enter it, how to abide in it, how to use it for wisdom and how to leave it, how to come out. So that the integration is is part of the whole process, how you come out. So when we come to the end of a meditation period, you know, holding a center, opening the sense faculties, giving yourself a little time to let that, you know, system rise up to reorganize itself around that learning to to come from the internal to the external in a graduated way and uh, that essentially that step of it is an important part of the the process because then we can also bring whatever we've learned in the meditation or whatever we've felt in the meditation we can also then bring that Forth, you know, uh, calmness or coolness or so on, and then you know, really important in the last, particularly the last days of retreat to you know, just look at vision, you know, vision. What's do I need to do in my life? What stop doing? So have you some sense of a, of a few notes you can give yourself? <clears throat> so let's pause here for this evening. <clears throat>